0: Hi, podcast listener. Welcome to Truth About Exits, a show dedicated to pulling back the curtain to reveal what it really takes to get deals closed. You'll hear directly from founders of companies who have raised capital, sold their companies, and even those who acquire other companies for growth. I'm your host, Corin Woodmass. I'm a dealmaker, advisor, And when I'm not closing deals, I love to talk to others about their deals and what it took to get them closed. And now you can listen into these conversations too. For all the show notes and more resources, go to truthaboutexits.com. And we're live. Today on Truth About Exits, I'm very excited to present to you and introduce to you Brent B. Shaw from AdVentures. Brent, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Awesome.
0: So I, I mentioned uh, just briefly as we were um, pre-recording this, I'm a bit of a fan of yours. <laughs> over the last couple of years, I've enjoyed listening to um, your stories on different podcasts and also see how Adventures has, has evolved over time. Could you, for people that don't know what Adventures is, could you give us a quick overview of what, what the company is and what you guys do?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for having me on. Um, so w- we describe ourselves as a family of companies that acquires family owned companies. Um, well, what that means in practice is we're, we're a private equity group. So we acquire a majority stake, um, in family owned, family operated companies. Um, but we do it in such a way that it's almost the opposite of traditional private equity. So we buy with no intention of ever selling the company. We, we keep leadership in place and really help augment skill sets. Um, we help if we can be helpful um, and then we use almost no debt if any debt in our transactions so we really are taking a a family-run company and keeping it the same way it has been run in the past and really just trying to augment that with a a layer of expertise and skill sets that maybe are unusual for family-run businesses
0: absolutely and having been in this space as an advisor that's Definitely against the grain of what most private equity firms are looking to do. Uh, most of the private equity guys I've spoken to, they really get their payday when they sell the portfolio, not when they're running the business. or And typically, they're raising capital to do that. So you're, um, like you mentioned, you rarely use debt. Um, you've only just started... Really using, utilizing the fund model. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, but could we back up a little bit, and could you tell us what you were doing before Adventures, and then maybe we could go into how Adventures came about.
1: Yeah. Well, I, so I, I'm 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 kind of the Forrest Gump of private equity, if you want to think about it that way. I've kind of fallen backwards into it. I, I certainly. Uh, I did my first private equity deal before I knew there was an industry called private equity. So very unusual background story. I was an entrepreneur, uh, an operator, and in fact, that's kind of a hallmark of uh, AdVentures employees. So we we all come from an operating background. Um, we consider ourselves operators, and um, we certainly are not operating the portfolio companies per se, but we come from the mindset and really try to optimize for the leadership teams and the operators that are in the companies and certainly have a lot of empathy for Uh, How difficult it is. I mean, it is an incredibly brutal thing to operate companies. So um, the the very beginning um, started a a couple uh, marketing companies and then had a mutual acquaintance who said, hey, you should talk to this guy. He got left at the altar for the second time. Um, You know, I I took that to mean I should buy his business um, because why would you tell me he'd been left at the altar for the second time? Uh, This guy had no idea I was going to try to go buy the business. And, um, yeah, I sat down with his owner, um, gosh, this is over 10 years ago now. And, um, if you've ever seen the picture of me, I look about 23 now, I looked about 14 then and, um, you know, told him I wanted to buy his business. Uh, he laughed and said, uh, you know, two grown men have tried to buy my business. How in the world are you going to do it? And I said, I don't know. I'll figure it out. Um, we tried to come to terms that day and it didn't work out. And about seven months later, he called me up and said, okay, look, we just renewed our largest account. Um, business is in great shape. I'm exhausted. Um, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll sell it to you for the price you asked. Um, but it's gotta be all cash 60 days from now. And so, uh, got an SBA loan and, um, you know, off to the races. That was the first acquisition. So that was almost 10 years ago now. And, uh, we still own that company today called media cross. Um, it's a wonderful company. Um, the CEO, longtime CEO, Jen Mali, um, is just a gem of a human being, um, does a fantastic job and, uh, um, yeah, still, still own the company today and it's doing great.
0: Wow. So that, that's quite, quite the story, Brent. Um, so do your, do your friends often advise you to go do things and you just jump straight in or was there a, um, <laughs> I, I'm joking, of course, but what, what was the, the, the real, um, the turning point. So you heard that someone was trying to sell their business. It didn't fulfill twice. Um, You must have been thinking about acquiring businesses at that point. Was it an expansion play because they have a a media marketing angle as well? Or what was that first thing that got you moving in that direction?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, this is going to sound terrible, but honestly, I had really never thought about acquiring another company. Um, I fancied myself an entrepreneur and uh, kind of a starter of businesses, and until um, this came along, I mean, it really hadn't crossed my mind to to do an acquisition, and I didn't know anything about it. I'd never diligenced the company. I knew nothing about negotiating for a transaction or what paperwork was involved. I mean, I, I literally can remember, um, you know, sitting on legal calls and like Googling terms. Um, you know, I think I owe most of my career to Google, um, just you know, trying to figure it out, and so. I mean, it was truly just, um, there was an opportunity. I saw it. Um, you know, I did the math on, well, gosh, if I can buy it for X and can do Y with it, um, that would be accretive. And, um, I think that would make sense. And I did it. And, you know, I, 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 I'd love to tell you there was some grand plan, but, uh, it really was just very organic how it came about.
0: Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. A lot of the people I deal with on a day to day basis in the lower middle market in, um, range of businesses as far as advisors and um, people in private equity have similar stories. <laughs> I don't think there's too many people that go through and say, I want to do this as a career. Of, of course, there are a percentage, but um, <laughs> it sounds like it was a it was a good move. So you acquired that first company about 10 years ago at Mediacross. So what happened next after that?
1: Yeah, well, so I mean, so after that, um, you know, just went to work and um, you know started trying to improve the business, helping try to grow it, and um, and then it really opened our eyes. I mean, we did well with it; um, the business really was on a great trajectory, and uh, it, it opened our eyes to the possibilities. And so I started doing research. I and mean, if you got to think back nine years ago, the Stanford search fund report was not out. The guys at Harvard really weren't producing any of their research yet. Um, there really wasn't anybody. Out there beating the drum on small company acquisitions and so um, I just again thank God for Google uh, went to work and tried to put together kind of a thesis around okay are there other companies out there well turns out there are Uh, there's a lot of companies out there turns out that most of them are owned by baby boomers and turns out that baby boomers are aging and uh, gonna need to transition their businesses and turns out that most of them don't have an exit strategy so you know, I certainly identified the opportunity, um, you know, that was just ripe for the picking, and um, and then really tried to figure out, okay, if that's the target we want to go after, and we want to make a career of acquiring small companies, how do you find them? Right? I mean, I couldn't rely on my friends to randomly bring me businesses. I mean, you know what what was I going to do to find these companies? And so you, know, you started looking at, you know, different private equity websites. And, you know, everyone says the same thing. We're a value add partner to blah, 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 with all the jargon. And I was like, gosh, this doesn't seem very seller friendly. And so um, really devised a plan to become the first kind of direct to consumer private equity brand. Um, and said, okay, well, h- how do you do that? Well, if I was in their shoes, I'd want to, First of all, be able to find y'all when I needed y'all. I'd I'd want to be able to read a lot about you. I'd like to understand you, get to know you through your writings, through, you know, various media forms. And so that's what we did. I mean, we felt like we shouted into the darkness for, you know, the better part of five years. And then, you know, before long, the darkness started shouting back and we started having really healthy deal flow. And if you fast forward to, gosh, uh, two years ago, uh, we owned a, a, a group of five companies at that time and um, just have tremendous opportunity. I mean, we have people knocking on our door. We've really never, uh, we had not gone outbound. Um, so it had all been just inbound deal flow for really the past gosh, four or five years at that point. And um, we just had more opportunity than we had capital. And um, so that's why we decided to raise the funds.
0: Excellent. Okay. Well, let's, let's step back. I've got a couple of questions before we get into the fund. Cause I, I've found that to be a really interesting story from watching from the sidelines. Um, the one question I did want to ask was with adventures. I I like that um, term by the way, the, the first direct to consumer private equity brand. I think that's great. Um, when, when you were building up this deal flow, did you ever consider, um, I typically see with the private equity model a couple of different approaches. So one is going down the vertical play. So they acquire a platform business in a in a vertical and then have some add-on acquisitions to that. Others do more of a shotgun approach, or others again look for multiple platforms and add-ons. So did you specifically go out with a vertical in mind first, or did you, once you started looking and seeing how much, how big of an opportunity this actually is, was it more about the numbers and the sustainability, the the profile of each business that made it interesting as opposed to a vertical integration play?
1: yeah so so we we intentionally went broad um, we, we had experience in the marketing and advertising field, but but really that was kind of it. so we didn't have experience in manufacturing or business services or anything like that so um, so so we intentionally went broad because we wanted to say, okay, if we the thesis would be you know we want to buy the highest quality businesses we can find that are still small and and really understand why they're small and so that requires a bottoms up underwriting as opposed to a sort of a top down thesis. Um, Look, there there are plenty of investors that do it differently and I certainly have done really well with it. Um, That just wasn't our style and because of the wide net that we were going to try to cast, um, it made a lot more sense to to be more agnostic from a business type and really underwrite the individual deals.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And is there any um, comfort in diversification as well being across? many verticals and different market cycles or the like, or is it literally just looking for a specific type of business?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say it's all related to the, the individual deals and the price um, compared to the quality, but yeah, yeah. I mean, diversification is something we think about. I mean, we certainly don't want to put, you know, all of our uh, proverbial eggs into one basket. I mean, I would say, um, the nice, so the the downside of being a generalist is, you know, you can get outbid and not really understand what you're looking at. If you know you, you buy a specialist, the the upside is, yeah, you just naturally get diversification.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, let's jump into own capital versus fund. So, in the first few interviews I heard and first few writings of yours I read, you were very much bullish on using your own capital, um, leveraging some debt maybe, but keeping it all in house and not raising a fund. And if anyone listening to this hasn't heard your interviews on it, that's like the best. It's kind of like a, um, a story arc of this transforming over time. So what was the shift that made you move from using your own capital that, that you're generating from these acquisitions to acquire more into going into the fund model?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So there are really two driving, driving forces. Um, one is, uh, the deal flow that we had just dramatically out, outpaced the capital and the rebuilding of capital. I mean, once you deploy into a deal, if you're not selling that deal and harvesting that, if you can tend to keep it, you're really just relying on those free cash flows, which, you know, as pass through entities were, you know, taxed at a, at what feels like a high rate. I mean, we can make that you know, debate, but, um, you know, you're paying a lot in taxes. And, of course, growing businesses, which we've been blessed to have, uh, require, you know, increased working capital requirements and increased, you know, equipment purchases. And so when you sort of net it down, even if you keep expenses very low, which being in the middle of Missouri, we were able to do, I mean, you're, you're not able to build that much cash that quickly. And so we just frequently saw deals that we were like, gosh, we just wish we had X amount of dollars on hand that we could do that deal. I mean, it's a perfect deal for us. We just don't have the resources and we don't want to go out and lever the heck out of these companies, right, and put them in peril. And so it was really a philosophy kind of clash between the reality that we were experiencing and the style of investments that we wanted to make. Um, And then, you know, I would say sort of the secondary driving factor was um, this very odd tension between um, some philanthropic efforts that my wife and I feel strongly about and having less bullets to shoot at the office right and every dollar we would give away would be one less dollar we would be able to use to make a new investment so you know in general it it was kind of this tension that we just kept feeling and ultimately you know we found the right people that uh, you know uh, in the right structure to be able to allow us to continue to doing what we're doing as opposed to having to go more of a traditional route with a traditional fund and cycles and all that stuff and we were able to get a group that Believed in the mission and wanted us to continue to doing what we're doing, and uh, support us in that. That's when we raised the first fund.
0: Absolutely, that I think that really puts it in perspective that it's it's based on the deal flow and opportunities. So you can only, like you said, there's only so many bullets right? when you're using your own capital or even amongst yourself and re- reinvesting the cash flow from those businesses while they're growing. So was it a tough? One was it a tough decision to move to the fund model, and secondly, was it was it tough to sell the never sell approach to business acquisitions?
1: Yeah, well, so um, I would say it should have been a lot harder than it was, um, and in fact, we had danced with a number of uh, family offices that you know wanted us to put together a hold co structure and. Uh, very similar to kind of like a Berkshire approach. And we could just never get comfortable with valuing the current asset base and how that would work long-term. And so, um, you know, everyone always came to us and said, okay, here's our model. You go find our model. And until so Patrick and his family, Patrick O'Shaughnessy um, came along and, and he asked the question that no one ever had asked. It was kind of the key that unlocked the door. And he said to me, I'll never forget exactly where we were. And when he said it, he said, all right, well, so what would it take for you to take outside capital? And I said, well, gosh, I don't know. I never really thought about it that way. And he said, well, why don't you figure that out and let me know. And so, you know, I worked on it for probably two, three weeks and came back and I said, here's exactly the model that I think we would, you know, we would want. Here's the way the fees would work. Here's how everything would happen. And he said, all right, that sounds good. My, my family will be your first investor. Let's go do this. And really, I mean, the relationship with him, he, he has been a, a godson and just an incredible partner.
0: Awesome. That's, that's really good. Okay. So that sometimes those connections that you meet along the way can really unlock the, um, the next level of what you're planning to do. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I joke that I'd monetize Twitter better than Twitter has.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Um, awesome. So let's, let's switch gears now, um, and talk a little bit about a book that, Anyone, definitely all of our listeners should read, but anyone thinking about either thinking to sell their business, looking to acquire a business, or just advising either side of these transactions should definitely pick up your book called The Messy Marketplace. And I read this in one sitting and was just um, amazed at how simple and easy it was to read on some really complex topics, so I think you've done a really good job of of writing that book, um, but I want to talk about two specific pieces of that of the book that actually um, one I put to work straight away and another i'd I'd just like to talk about in general so one of the the really great things you did was you managed to um, explain or define biotypes really well um, so you've probably bumped up a lot against a lot of other investors and business acquirers along the way. Um, could you explain um, just a, a high-level view of the different buyer types and how you you look at buyers in the small business
1: market? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I, um, in general, there's kind of four broad buyer types. And of course, there's different flavors of each one of these. So I'm going to talk about you know sort of broad generalizations and um, there's a lot of nuance. And of course, uh, if you're curious, um, you know, again, Google it. <laughs> there's a lot of information that's out there. Um, or better yet, buy the book as a plug. Um, exactly. Uh, buy the book. <laughs> in, in of, yeah, exactly. Um, shameless plug. So um, in terms of buyer types, I mean, I would say traditional private equity is what everyone thinks about. Um, it, it's interesting because in, in the lower end of the lower middle market, so the the the, the terminology we're using is kind of businesses that are under 15, $20 million of earnings, kind of in that range, um, it's really difficult for for private equity firms by the nature of the fund structure and how they're designed and the the leverage they use to be able to dip below kind of $10 million of earnings. They can opportunistically, if they're gonna do some some roll-ups and combine some businesses to go under that, but sort of naturally, there's kind of a $10 million break point in which going underneath that um, creates sort of sustainability issues at most private equity funds. So um, when you think about buyers, mostly private equity is operating kind of up market, um, occasionally coming down opportunistically down into the very low end of the lower middle market. So most of the competition for us is in the form of kind of search funds on the low end, um, the average search fund deal was about $2 million of, of I think EBITDA is the, is the terminology they, they use for that, that metric. Um, so these are a little bit smaller deals, and they are kind of low-end at AdVentures. is $3 million of earnings. So they're a little bit below um, AdVentures in size. Um, I would say direct competing with us is like fundless sponsors and um, some operational family offices. And we, I mean, we can go through, so those are kind of the four types, private equity, fundless sponsors, search funds, and operational family offices. Um, And we can go into, you know, sort of the inner workings of each one of those, but kind of broadly, that's the competition set. And then really, I mean, it just depends on the individual situation, right? So search funds can certainly go higher up market, but most of them stay in the lower end. Um, Fundless sponsors, um, there are some really legit fundless sponsors out there that go up market, but most of them are kind of on the lower end. And, you know, we kind of group them together with like what we call country club deals, right? So guys that are deal guys that kind of pass the hat at the country club and, and round up money that way. Um, so it just really depends i me. Mean, happy to go into each one in, in detail. They're there kind of various different forms they take, but most of them, um, you know, whether it's search funds, fundless sponsors or private equity firms have a defined time period. Usually it's seven to 10 years where they raise the capital and then have to return the capital back. So they have to buy and sell companies pretty quickly uh, in that process. They're used to using a lot of debt. Um, and they're used to changing out the leadership of the companies, either assuming the leadership positions for themselves or, um, you know, replacing leadership with hiring in new leadership. So that's kind of the hallmarks of them. And then family offices are uh, just a <laughs> the joke is once you've met one family office, you've met one family office. They're just all over the board. Um, there's really no rhyme or reason. to. It just depends on the family. It depends on the pool of money, their tolerance, their background, who's running the money. Um, and so it's just kind of a, a hodgepodge
0: sure so let's let's talk a little bit about those those biotypes thanks for the the overview. This is one of the pieces of the book I really liked was the depth that you went into on each each biotype so let's let's pick one and and go down the The two that we see most often in that one to ten million of earnings or EBITDA range are typically fundless sponsors and search funds so let's talk about fundless sponsors a little bit so this is basically a person or a group that is actively looking for a business to acquire, but they don't have the cash like the title suggests. Now, they won't call themselves a fundless sponsor, by the way. Um, so it's it's a little bit tricky to figure out on the front end, at least. They might have a a domain name that says something capital, and they may have some <laughs> investment partners. Capital. Exactly right. right. <laughs> exactly. So, um, how how do you know? How do you view that? If you were in a conversation with someone and they said, "I'm looking for a company. Here's my criteria," what's the next question you would ask to figure out if they are a fundless sponsor or another type of buyer?
1: I mean, I think the the, the easiest um, and most straightforward is: Do you have a dedicated fund? Right, that's the question to ask. Do you have dedicated funds? And of course, uh, uh, unfortunately, some people lie and say they do have dedicated funds when they don't. Um, but that's kind of a very bright line in the sand, you know. And if they say yes, um, you can ask them to say, okay, can I see your fund documents? Can I see? Can I? You know, where's the source of capital? And dig on that. Um, you know, the the really good fundless sponsors and the ones that really do have access to resources will say, yeah, we've done you know, 22 deals over the last 15 years and you know, we we have these seven families that we always raise from, and we just raise on a deal by deal basis, it's easier. It's like, oh, well, that's a very legit, you can reference check them, you can, you know, they don't get prickly about, uh, you know, when you ask them for, for those references. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, there are, uh, you know, I joked about, you know, you can just literally throw up a private equity firm, you know, pick a pick a river nearby or a body of water nearby and slam it together with a street name. And now you've got, you know, River Street Capital, right? And uh, it looks official and you can say it, you know, you, you can say you have capital. And then really what you're doing is you're trying to create uh, really three transactions at once, which makes it nearly impossible to actually get a deal done. So you're trying to raise the equity capital at the same time you're trying to get uh, debt capital at the same time you're trying to get the deal done uh, with the seller. Right. So it's really three transactions that all have to click together simultaneously and, and it just virtually never happens. So, um, I think that, you know, just asking about the source of capital and if it's committed or not is really the first step.
0: Mm, Absolutely. And yeah, with that, um, street name website, uh, often if there's a portfolio that, that gives us an indication that, Hey, maybe these guys have closed deals before, and then you can kind of go down that rabbit hole and then what type of businesses are you looking for that you can kind of take them more seriously. Um, Okay, so that's that's fundless sponsors. Let's talk a little bit about search funds. There's a little bit of crossover between the two. So a, a search fund is typically backed by a legitimate fund, a private equity fund or group. And they basically have these guys come out mostly out of MBAs or former operators. And their mandate is to go find companies to acquire. And you mentioned stanford and harvard they um harvard business school has a a great book on this this topic buying a small business and it's all about the search fund model so could you explain a little bit more about that and what you would want to know if you were dealing with a a search fund
1: yeah i mean i think the 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 first question is the exact same question as funnel sponsors which is do you have dedicated capital or not now the interesting part is a um, a search fund typically the way it works is um, the, the investors will put up, call it 300000 to $600,000 to fund the actual search. So this will pay for the living expenses and travel costs and fees associated with finding a business, acquiring it, um, getting to close. The investors in that fund, though, have the option. They're not obligated to. They have the option to be able to invest in the deal or not. So oftentimes the best question to ask uh, with a, with a uh, search fund is what are the, what's the mandate that you've been given, sort of what are the guardrails around the uh, type of business you can buy, does that have to be recurring revenue, what size range, um, those types of things. And if they can't really give you a crisp, clear answer, the odds are that they're more of a fundless sponsor than a funded sponsor the more crisp that they can say, hey, look, I'm, I'm, I'm buying a business services company that has you know, 80% or higher recurring revenue that's located in this geography. Okay, great. I mean, they know exactly what they're looking for and, and odds are they're going to be a lot more successful. So I think it's like anything else. I mean, being respectful, but just asking the hard questions. And then you know, it's almost, <laughs> it's even less about how, like the information that they respond with and just really the tone and how defensive and sort of how much posturing is going on. Um, that should be the warning
0: signs. Yeah, absolutely. We we love it when a when an investor or a buyer comes through and they know exactly what they want. The clearer the criteria, the more track record, or the more they know about or willing to share about their their fund setup or their funding sources. It gives you more more confidence to move forward with that that buyer. So um, yeah, that's that's a great. A great point. Um, now, one thing that you've mentioned in the book and something we, we typically see on transactions is something that a novice or a first-time business seller may not be um, used to seeing is typically the highest price that you... Well, not typically, but not always the highest price wins. So when you're going to sell your business, you're not always looking for the highest sticker price on the offer you really want to know who who's potentially looking to acquire the business like we've just talked about how they're going to fund the deal most importantly because if they can't close on the deal there's no point going through the pain of diligence and also the deal terms really matter so this kind of goes into the other side of of your criteria i guess is you look at a lot of deals so how do you compete against someone who is maybe passing the hat at the country club and puts in a crazy high offer, or maybe they are a legitimate search fund and they think they can get the deal done at a higher price. Are you typically competing on price or terms? And how do you think about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, so so, a great question. I mean, I would say um, there's an old adage in the deal world, which is you set the price, I set the terms, right? Meaning the price is almost irrelevant to a point based on the terms. So, I mean, you can throw out, you know, a crazy number. One, a lot of people throw out a crazy number and have no intention of actually paying that. They try to whittle them down due diligence and, you know, oh, lo and behold, they found all these surprises that, you know, knocks half the price down, right? Um, second, um, you know, what the likelihood of getting the cash matters far more. And so for us, I mean, oftentimes we're just a completely different offer than everything else. So everyone else is competing on price. They're putting a ton of debt on the business. Um, and, and it's sort of more traditional deal structure. And then for us, we say, look, we're the sure bet. We have the cash on hand, like literally in our bank account, ready to roll. Um, so there's no financing risk. We're bringing in no senior lender or mes lender, right? So there's no uh, financing risk on the debt side because there usually is no debt. Um, and um, here's our price and here's why we think it's fair. Now, look, you can always try to go out and find somebody who can tell you they'll, they'll, they'll get a deal done. But I think that, you know, us being the sure bet is usually the path we like to take. And um, sometimes we're the highest bid. I mean, obviously, we get, you know, quite a few deals done. So we're uh, in the ballpark of reasonable. But, you know, oftentimes we're not going to be the highest bid and for very good reason. I mean, if you're going to be able to lever up the company with a ton of debt, you're almost always going to be able to put more cash in close. Um, and, you know, again, you get into a heads I win, tails you lose type scenario.
0: Absolutely, and I think the the positioning that you've as you mentioned being the first direct consumer private equity brand um, comes into play do you do you go into a a competitive environment if there is you know competing buyers do you go in with here's you've kind of already mentioned this, but do you leverage other things that you've you've put out there so do you send them your book do you, do you send them a deck on who we are and here's how to think about some of the other offers you're seeing. How do, you, how do you leverage the resources that you've you've developed over time when it comes to winning a deal?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, so oftentimes, um, if, if it's a competitive situation, there's usually an intermediary involved, um, almost always. And um, as you know, um, different intermediaries have different styles and some are very protective of the seller and uh, let very little information that sort of non-standard slip by them. Um, so what we oftentimes do is, you know, we're certainly presenting uh, a very clear, straightforward offer, but we're hoping that the seller does research on us, right? We're hoping that they go on our website. Um, they're, we're hoping that they do um, do their work, and 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 oftentimes, if they are doing that work, um, uh, that's a very positive signal. And and inversely, if they're not doing that work and they could care less who buys the business, that's a really nice selection bias for us, right? Um, and so, you know, we, we certainly are leveraging all the, all different resources. I mean, the book in particular was not written to necessarily be a, you know, a thick business card. Um, I mean, certainly we've gotten deal flow from it, but, but that's not the main purpose. I mean, the main purpose is once we're already in conversation with them, we'd like to give them the book as a guidebook to sort of working with us. It's kind of like the first five to seven hours of conversations we'd like to have with them. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if that answers
0: your question or not. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess I assumed that was the the reason or what you would do, but it's it's interesting just hearing that from your perspective. Um, I think mostly with novice or newer business buyers, um, oftentimes they come into the the space thinking, "I've got the cash, I'll set all the terms." And sometimes when it's their first or second deal they're looking at um sometimes they can get a little bit angry with the process or not really understand that it is a competitive environment and for the most part when there is an intermediary involved and advisors there's there is some sort of competition happening for that business and it's really important to to um, understand that's happening and present your your um opportunity in the best light possible. So what you're planning to do with the business and getting to know the business owner as well, which I think um, is something that that you guys do really well. And having a book to hand over will definitely um, provide some points for sure. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's this actually leads into the second part of the book I really liked, which was seller motivations. So obviously, step one is to figure out why the seller is selling and some of these, especially in the companies you're looking for that are a family held for maybe generations or it's the end of one generation coming to the end of one generation and that that's why they're needing to sell. Um, What are the common motivations and do you often find you need to go a couple layers deeper to really figure out what's going on and why they're looking to sell?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, oftentimes um, the the we'll ask the seller, so you know, what do you want to get out of the transaction? And they're like, um, that's a dumb question. Money, like, why are you even, you know, what what else would there be? And we like, well, well, sure. You know, obviously the finances matter, but the way we think about it, I mean, there's personality and skill set gaps, right? That you can fill with a transaction. There's just pure exhaustion, freedom, health, different obligations that you would have, be risking the situation, and then obviously leaving a legacy. Um, that have, you know, really all those are intertwined with money, but different. And so, um, you know, we really try to understand why the person's selling. And, and it says a lot about what the company they built, how they're motivated, and, and really how they've motivated the team. Not to say there's any right or wrong answer, we just want to understand kind of a 3D view of that. So we talk a lot about um, motivations with the sellers and try to get on the same page. I mean, I would say the only motivation that really I mean, absolutely turns us off is when people say, well, it seems like now's a good time to sell my business, right? Which means it's opportunistic, right? Like they, a seller is always gonna be in a far superior position of knowledge to any buyer. And if somebody comes to us and says, you know, I'm, I'm trying to time the market, right? Like people have told me at the country club that uh, now's a good time to sell and I agree and you know, I wanna sell and uh, cash in. It's like, well, what that really means is you're trying to time the market and you're trying to screw over a buyer, right? Like we wanna create win-win Transactions, and when somebody comes in it from a very zero sum game, um, very transactional basis, it's, it's just hard to create a win win situation.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's that's been our experience too. Uh, that's that's often a scary a scary position to go out into the market with if someone thinks they're at the the peak. And I often advise clients that it's you, you'll never sell at the peak. Um, it's it's impossible. One to actually time that exit to be the perfect peak is impossible. But also if it's clear that the business is at the peak or the cycle is at the peak and you're selling fidget spinners and you think, okay, this is definitely a fad, let's say. um, You know that that's coming to an end or it's already on the way down. The only way to think about that is what's the future. So as an investor, you want a return on your capital and you always want a faster return than the list price. Why wouldn't you? I mean, that that's the whole game. Like you said, it's got to be a win-win. It needs to be the the number that that seller needs and the terms that that suit them. But also for you as the investor, it's really important that you get a return on capital to continue doing what you're doing. And in your case, now that you have a fund as well, you need to re- provide a return to your investors. So it is really a holistic approach
1: for sure and i would say too though that you know it's not a fixed um fixed set of rules meaning that that who the buyer is can affect the structure of the transaction both positively and negatively so oftentimes we're able to get terms that other buyers can't get because we have a long track record of treating people really really well always doing what we say we're going to do never missing a payment um you know just being really faithful and forthright and so you know, oftentimes we'll have provisions in there with delayed payments or some earnout structure in which most people would say, well, no, wait a minute, there are 10,000 ways you can try to screw me over. And we say, well, of course, there's always going to be ways in, in business that you could try to screw somebody over. We would never do that to you. And by the way, here's a long laundry list of people that you can call and reference check us and ask us if that's something that, um, you know, so, something that we've ever done. And people will say, oh, wow. And so they get comfort level with who we are, how we do business. And it allows us to create a more optimal structure where long-term we can get them more money, right? It just has to be earned out over a period of time or some sort of delay to make sure we're sharing in that risk.
0: Mm, absolutely. Yeah, partnering on the on the future. And I talk a lot about um, this publicly, but also uh, with clients advising on deal structures. Deal structures, it, it's really important who's making that offer and what the offer of what the deal structure is so if someone i, I put out a video on this that um <laughs> the traditional private equity model of rolling over 20 percent of equity and we'll build this up and sell it in five years for the second bite of the apple that's the the standard approach for the private equity model and the main reason that that's done is to reduce risk it's not to give you the second bite of the apple as the seller and also how, what are the chances of that actually coming through? So have the, have the buyers done that before? If that is game plan, who, who else, like you said, can you reference check that? Is there anyone else you can talk to about their success? So there's, there's a holistic approach to, to this, um, yeah, so that's that's important to know. But um I know we are coming up to um the top of the hour here. So I've got a few more things I want to move into. Um so in this show is called Truth About Exit, so I wouldn't be doing my job if we didn't talk about some deal specifics. So Brent, have you have you got a deal example or a couple of deal scenarios that were that you would say were the hardest deals to get done? And could you walk us through what made that hard and what made you still want to do that deal?
1: I mean, I would say uh we've never done a deal that's not hard. Um in fact, I, you know, I would say it's just natural that um uh anytime you're you're talking about setting up a long-term partnership, which is the way, the only way we do deals, um, it should take a lot of time and and honestly it should be painful in in hopefully some good ways. Um I mean, lots of conversations, lots of tough conversations, lots of Um, sort of soul searching on both sides about what we want and making sure we're on the same page. So, uh, I mean, not to be too generic about it, I would say every deal is hard. I mean, certainly uh, deals are differently hard. And we've, I mean, experienced everything from uh, sellers being outright fraudulent, to, um, you know, people pulling the rug out from underneath us on the finish line to, um, personality conflicts. I mean, I sort of, if you've been around it for as long as we have and seen as many deals we have, you're going to have a, uh, a lot of horror stories. <laughs> but, uh, the nice thing is the the businesses and transactions that we have gotten done, um, we've been incredibly blessed. I mean, the, the people we've partnered with, um, had, you know, our, faithful, kind, generous people that are hardworking and, um, you know, we've really enjoyed the partnership with. Are there going to be issues? Uh, of course, there's always going to be issues. Are, uh, you know, the, the book is called The Messy Marketplace, right? Because people are messy, uh, us included, right? And so no one escapes messiness. And I think that just understanding your own messiness and understanding, um, you know, what you can always be growing in uh, is super important.
0: Mm, absolutely. That's a, that's a really good point. And you kind of mentioned... One of these, but what are the what are the typical reasons that a deal will fall out of diligence? So once you've gone through, seen the initial information, got excited about the deal. Um, of course, you're a disciplined investor; you don't get excited. But once you like the deal and you're you're going through the deal, what what typically, other than outright fraud, which is obvious, if something doesn't match up, that needs to be discussed. But what are the typical reasons once you get into that? that uh, is a, is a red flag enough for you to pull the deal? And has that changed over time?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I would say the, the two major buckets are reality is different than what we were told reality was. Um, and, and some of this is intentional uh, sort of deception and some of it's unintentional. I mean, oftentimes we're doing a level of uh, research on the business that, that frankly the business owner has never done. And so we'll oftentimes say, hey, by the way, we found this. What do you think? And they'll say, we had no idea that that lien was out there. We had no idea that that had actually been filed against us, right? Things that are very unusual that, that, that seemingly pop up in almost every deal. Um, if you've been operating for 30, 40, 50 years, I mean, there are going to be skeletons, even if you don't know about them, right? Um, and so, you know, I would say that's kind of one bucket is just the things that we discover. And, and you know, look we try to build in a margin of safety where we, we know that a business is not going to be clean, uh, no businesses, right? So we price that into the deal and we have a you know margin of safety to work with when we find bad news. Um, the deal doesn't ever get better in due diligence. Let's put it that way, right? Um, but um, at the same time, you know, if it reaches a critical level or something really pops up that gives us pause, um, you know, we try to bring that up immediately and address it just very Uh, dispassionately and very in a straightforward manner and just try to make sure that um, um, you know everyone's on the same page about what reality is and then we can address it Um, and then sometimes we'll offer a solution I mean we don't we we don't like to renegotiate deals in fact we've only done it one time um, (coughs) in the history of the firm literally one time Um, so oftentimes if it gets to the point where we feel like we need to renegotiate we just say hey let's just call it quits and move on Um, but you know, we will go back and say, okay, maybe we can change, tweak the deal structure a little bit, maybe put a little bit more on the earn out or on the note, um, something like that to, to, to accomplish sort of the risk sharing that we found. Um, the other bucket I would say is just personalities and vision for the company. I mean, this is one of the things that it's easy to talk at a very high level, um, when there's nothing at stake and you're kind of in just broad discussions early on. And, you know, you talk about strategy, you talk about how you like to do things, but then look, when it comes down to it, um, you got to make sure you're on the same page about how to operate the business. And if that can't happen or if there's a, you know, just really personality conflicts, um, you know, that's another thing. We've, we've got our model is predicated on finding great partners to people to partner with. And if we don't think that we can be good partners to them or vice versa, it's just not going to work.
0: I like it. I like it. That makes a ton of sense, Brent. Thanks for for sharing that that insight. And I've been talking a little bit about this, but I, I guess I'll just come straight out and ask. In, in the start of the middle market, you mentioned that you've had the, the good fortune to see behind the curtain on about 10,000 businesses at the time of writing the book. So in a typical year, how many deals do you typically look at? Um, and how many of those do you progress with and how many would even close out of those deals that you typically look at in a year?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, so we see a ton um, and, and most of them are quick passes, right? So our segment of the market, our kind of sweet spot, that 3 to $8 million of owner earnings range. Um, most of the businesses that are in that range it can't be transitioned. So we are looking for, you know, sort of hallmarks of uh, a business that can be transitioned, right? You know, kind of decentralized decision-making, uh, a lack of reliance on any one person or small group of people, um, and, of course, all the other sort of, you know, factors um, uh, around that. Um, and then, you know, w- what we're really trying to get after um, – actually, hold on. I totally lost my train of thought. I apologize. Maybe you can edit this out. What was the original question? Sorry.
0: Um- so how many how many deals? Oh, how many businesses? Do you look right, at? right, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah sorry, sorry actually... I apologize. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. So, so sorry about that. So, so yeah, so we we on an annual basis, um, we look at a lot of deals. So we look at um, probably close to two thousand, maybe a little over two thousand deals a year, which is still actually a very small percentage uh, of the overall market. We'll get serious about maybe a couple hundred of those on an annual basis. So call it you know one every day or two. Um, that we'll really do some work on. And then we'll probably make 30 to 35 site visits a year, um, get serious enough to go on site. And then we'll get down to kind of three to five deals a year that we'll we'll close. So um, it is a very small number. I mean, once we go on site, we are serious about it. And it's really just a matter of making sure that all those things, you know, match up that we talked about before.
0: Wow. And so why do you keep doing this? if if the numbers are so low that you need to see 2,000 deals a year to maybe close three to five?
1: I mean, it's just, it, it's got to be, you got to have a wide funnel just based on the, the type of market we're in. Uh, I mean, um, you know, I, most of the businesses, uh, like I said, can't be transitioned. So, you know, you're looking for all those hallmarks and um, why we do it. I mean, I, I think it's actually um, uh, pretty good odds. I mean, when you look at the grand scheme of things about how difficult it is to Transition to business, I mean, we are, I think, by a mile, uh, the, the largest team in our segment of the market and do the most deals of anybody in our segment of the market. Um, and so it just requires a tremendous volume uh, of opportunities to be able to hone in on those that you really get serious about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I was hoping you would say that it's fun, but
1: I'm sure at some level it is. And it's a blast. We love what we do. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, absolutely. We, we, we absolutely love what we do. I mean, I, like, we stopped doing it for the money a long time ago. Um, fortunately, and I mean, we just, we think that we can serve and the way we truly look at it is we can serve companies. Um, when there are, uh, businesses that need to be transitioned, um, the alternative is they go defunct and people lose their jobs and a lot of values wasted. So we take our jobs very seriously, but we have a blast doing it. I mean, I think I have the best job in the world
0: i love it brent well um, we're coming up to the top of the hour here i've got way more questions to go with but i'll just mention one thing and then we'll go into wrapping up the the interview here this thanks for coming on the show again um, this has been amazing and one thing i wanted to highlight i wanted to talk a little bit about this but i just i'll mention it now is one thing that i've been really impressed with adventures as a whole is as a as an advisor in intermediary um I often have groups that are actively acquiring businesses reach out and and put information out, but it's typically, oh, we've done this deal or something like that. You've gone a complete 100 steps beyond that. And the messy marketplace is, is one Version of that, but also the middle ground, um, which is an open legal resource on negotiating purchase agreements for deal professionals. Um, I've been using the middle ground. I I love it. Um, I love all of the stuff that you're putting out. It seems like you're genuinely trying to make this this space better. So I just wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for doing that. I think you guys are doing a great job.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, truly, we do try to give back. I mean, I think that. leaving the world a little bit better place than when you found it is, is the only way to go. And, um, you know, it, we, we try to be helpful and generous to, uh, um, to the whole ecosystem. So I appreciate you saying that. Thank you.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, one more question before I, um, leave with how people can find out more about you. Um, do you have any other than the messy marketplace, of course, do you have any books that you'd really like to recommend to either people looking to sell or go into buying companies like yourself?
1: Boy, I mean, this may be an unusual um, uh, suggestion, um, but I I love this book called The Fish That Ate the Whale. And I've recommended this book in the past, but but it it really describes how um, you can start with nothing. um, You can build an empire just based on continuing to sort of lever up and, 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 you know, execute, you know, well, and it shows you how messy and weird and, and just, odd businesses in general. Um, The the, the gentleman that is described in the book is by no means of of the utmost ethics. I'm not endorsing his his ethics or glorifying the way he went about it. But I think that that book is a really interesting snapshot into sort of the belly of the beast. And I'm always a huge fan of of the (laughs) investors like to keep things at a high level. And um, kind of look at everything as just being a number. And business is people, and it's it's weird and it's messy, as I said. And I, I think the more that you can get exposed to what it's really like to operate a company, the better.
0: Absolutely, I actually read that book um, on, listened to it on Audible, I should say, after I heard you speak about this book. And I got to be honest, mate, this. Really made me question my long-held belief in capitalism. I I, (laughs) after finishing (laughs) that book, I really questioned if I was on the right path. (laughs) Am I doing the right thing? Do I do I really want to move forward with these huge plans I have? Um, I snapped out of it pretty quickly, but like you said, it it really that's the best way to describe that book. It's it's the belly of the beast. It's the good and the bad. It's a real story. It's um, yeah. So I'd highly recommend that as well. (laughs) Um, Sure. so, so Brett, I, I appreciate your time. I know we're we're up on our hour here. Um, how? What's the best way for people to learn more about Adventures and yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say go on our website. I mean, the the, <clears throat> the web address is, is just our name, so it's Adventures with a dot before the e f, so no dot com. Um, and I'm available on Twitter. Um, I'm I, I try to be very accessible. LinkedIn, Twitter email, I mean kind of whatever way you want to get in touch with me. I mean you know, I'm happy to help if I can be helpful.
0: Perfect. Well Brent, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'll definitely have to hit you up for a second, second interview to get through some of these other questions. But um like I said at the top, um, definitely go check out the messy marketplace as well. And there's a ton of resources on the Adventures site. So definitely check that out. But thank you once again for coming on the show, Brent. This has been fun.
1: Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. Cheers.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Truth About Exits. Now, whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you. If your company is doing between 10 to 50 million plus in revenue and you want help to plan your perfect exit to achieve the highest value and best deal terms possible, or if you'd like advice on acquiring other companies to continue to grow your company, we can help. Go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. There you'll see a simple form to tell us a little bit more about you, your company, and your goals. And my team and I will take it from there. So go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. The second way I can help is become a guest on our show. If you've had a successful exit, you want to share your story, or if you're actively acquiring other businesses and want to share your criteria with our audience, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash guest. Let's connect and I'd love to talk to you. The third way I can help you is one of my favorite things in the entire world is sharing the truth about exit stories with other entrepreneurs by speaking at events all over the world. So far, I've had the privilege of speaking at events in the US, Canada, UK, Spain, Germany, Ukraine, Czech Republic, over in Asia, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and even Australia. If you'd like me to speak at your next event, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash speaker and tell me a little bit more about your event and we'll go from
1: there. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode.